Good evening to you all. So many Dharma topics, so little time. So Beth kind of set this one up in a certain kind of way when she offered the talk on the seven factors of awakening. I thought I would take this evening and do a close-up zoom on one of these seven factors, which is concentration, otherwise known as samadhi. So do you want some samadhi? (laughs) I'm guessing you probably might. So, well, if this is what we uh, would like to have arise, maybe we should start by taking a look at what it actually is. And then I'm going to talk about uh, supports for it, um, things that tend to undercut it, important things to consider in cultivating it, its role in uh, the structure of the Buddhist teachings, its role in in practice, and yeah, that should take a little time. (laughs) So samadhi, samadhi, concentration. What are we talking about with this? So one way of putting this is undistractedness. And the word samadhi itself is derived from a Pali prefix sam, which means together, and the root da, which means to put or to place. So in other words, unifying the mind in a steady, undistracted awareness, a quality of mind that's calm and settled without distraction. And there's another word that's sometimes used in association with samadhi, which is kagata, which means one-pointedness of mind or unification. So when you hear that one-pointedness of mind, you might have the idea come up. It's like a little point, you know, a little kind of a pinprick, like it's a tiny little narrow thing. But it doesn't necessarily have to be narrow. It can be broad in a certain kind of way. Bhante Gunarantana defines concentration as a gathering together of all the positive forces of the mind, tying them into a bundle and welding them into a single intense beam that will stay where we put it. So that's an interesting definition because it talks about a gathering together of positive forces of of the mind. So that tells you right there that concentration isn't just a single factor of mind, but that it arises in association with other things as well. So Ajahn Brahm defines it as attentive stillness. And Shaila Catherine, who is a a modern Western concentration teacher, says the mental factor of one-pointedness with its characteristic of non-distraction is sometimes used synonymously with concentration. She says, but mental factors such as one-pointedness, decision, energy and mindfulness work together to drive attention to the chosen object and consolidate the associated mental factors into a state we commonly recognize as being concentrated. Which is all a way of saying that concentration actually emerges when wholesome mind factors come together 
creating a stable unification of mind which allows us to choose an object of awareness at will and be able to stay with it mindfully. So if we were to consider this samadhi, this concentration, and take a look at where it is found in the Buddha's path and his schema in his teachings, you would have to say that this is something that is important. And it shows up in a number of different ways. So it's the last step on the Eightfold Path, Sama Samadhi. It's the, the sixth of the seven factors of awakening. So after it is um, equanimity, upekka. It's the fourth of the five spiritual faculties that also called the controlling faculties. It's a tool that opens the Brahma-Vihara practices to a, a jhanic level of concentration. It's a support for the higher insights in Vipassana practice. And it's the platform for classic enlightenment experiences to come within range. So there's a lot of questions that can come up about practices, relationship to concentration. So one of the ones that frequently comes up is how much samadhi or concentration is enough for liberation and awakening? So how much do you need? Like if you're going to put it on a scale from one to a hundred, you know, what are you, what are you shooting for here? And there's actually a surprising amount of opinion about this point. So there's a range of views about this uh, in insight practice, all the way from Pawak Saida, uh, who says there should be a lot, um, you know, a jhanic level of concentration. And when he talks about jhana, he's talking about very deep levels of concentration. To Saida Utejaniya, who says, you know, access level, kanaka samadhi um, is, is all that you need. Really, mindfulness is, uh, is much more important. Attitude of mind is really the emphasis. So, of course, this brings about thoughts of self-evaluation, like, what do I got? What's my practice like? Do I have enough? Is mine as good as the other kids, you know? Can I get more? Uh, so for many of us, concentration is, is actually a weaker part of our practice. And that, of course, is the bad news. But the good news is that concentration can be developed. So whatever level that you have now can be increased. Um, and you've seen that for yourself over the course of this retreat as you practice uh, diligently over a period of uh, days and, and weeks and months concentration has grown and however much you have now it can be further cultivated so one of the really wonderful things about the practice opportunity that you've had here is that you've had time and you still have time you've had time to do this cultivation because in order for concentration to really develop to to open it takes time. It takes time and patience. It's not a quick blooming plant for most people. 
So looking at ways to cultivate concentration, we can take a, a first look at how it's the same and how it's different in the two main practice paths. So those of you who know something about Buddhist meditation and how it's often described, it's described as having two kind of two branches. One is what's called insight meditation practice, also known as vipassana practice, also known as mindfulness meditation, uh, especially in a more secular setting. And then there's the other branch that's uh, shamatha practice, uh, concentration practice. That makes it sound or could be taken as suggesting that the vipassana or the insight wing of practice, which goes towards the cultivation of liberative wisdom, doesn't employ or deploy or under-emphasizes concentration, but that's not really the case. It just cultivates a different type of concentration, and that concentration has a a particular role within the practice that's different from the role that concentration has within the shamatha practices. So in doing insight meditation, we're practicing for wisdom. We're practicing to unbind the delusion in the mind by uh, seeing it and seeing through it. And in this style of practice, what we're developing is something that's called access concentration, access concentration. And this is a stage of concentration that is pre- absorption into a single object. In other words, it's concentration developed in a way that allows us to maintain the capacity to observe changing objects and change within objects. That's what we're going for in insight meditation practice. You've heard a lot of talks about the three characteristics and how We're noticing impermanence, we're noticing dukkha, we're noticing not-self. That means that mindfulness in insight meditation is the lead horse and does what mindfulness does in insight meditation practice, which is investigation. It investigates states, it investigates objects, it notices the change of things. It notices the change within experiences. So it isn't fixed to a certain thing, to the exclusion of other things, and it maintains this capacity to observe the arising and passing of things. So that's why you have these teachings that talk about the four foundations of mindfulness and the six sense doors and things. So the samadhi that's developed here can actually be very strong. It can be very deep, but it remains investigative and able to see the three characteristics. In the other branch of meditative practice, the shamatha practices, when we're practicing for absorption, here there's a kind of monofocus, usually on a single object, And the breath can be used uh, for concentration, for absorption, 
for the cultivation of jhanas, or we can use the breath in insight meditation practice for the cultivation of insight. So at a certain point in the growth or development of concentration in our practice, if we're starting with with insight practice or if we're starting with concentration practice, when the concentration gets to a certain level that we call access concentration, right there there's kind of a little decision tree for us. You know, are we going to go in the direction of shamatha practices and absorption or are we going to go in the direction of insight practices? But in the earlier stages of concentration, the actual techniques that, that we use to develop concentration could look quite similar, for instance, in terms of how you relate to the breath. If you're using the breath as a very strong anchor, as a, something that you, you hold on to quite tightly, even though you're doing insight practice, that would be a style of practice that would be more uh, likely to result in uh, earlier manifestation of uh, concentration because you're, you're not uh, dispersing your attention and you're not paying the uh, attentional penalty that's there every time an object changes. But with concentration uh, practice, we can dedicate our attention to uh, something that's not a completely simple object, but is like a repetition of a single kind of thing, like doing the Brahma Viharas, where we may hold a particular image of a person, and then there's the recitation of the phrases, the same phrases over and over and over again. That's another way that the mind can become unified. So, Let's take a look at places where cultivation of concentration can get tripped up. Because as I said, this is a challenging area for um, a lot of people. So one thing to mention is sila stuff. So if you take the precepts on retreat and then you're not keeping them, there can be unease in the mind at the dissonance. So that is not supportive of concentration. And likewise, leaks in seclusion. So concentration is very much supported by seclusion. It really uh, needs it and it needs time. So if one is doing things like, you know, writing letters or passing notes or breaking silence, um, this has an effect on the practice environment and on your, on your settledness of mind. So lots of reading or even doing something that is wholesome, there's nothing wrong uh, with, with this, like listening to like a lot of Dharma talks or something. It's not that it's a bad thing, but if you keep in mind that what you're wanting the mind to do is really settle down and unify, not so useful during the period of cultivation of samadhi. And, you know, likewise, the use of, you know, the smartphones and tablets and all that stuff. Um, So it just stirs up the mind. 
So uh, another thing is, and this has to do with how the mind approaches the practice or is trying to do the practice, trying to make something happen right now, right now. I want the object or I want concentration and I want it now. So instead of just attending to the meditation object, the mind is grasping to have something desired happen, leaning into the future with a kind of rigid demand. So this is, this is about the attitude with which one is turning to the practice. Likewise, if there's a, a hindrance present in how the object is attended to, so if there's an unwholesome state there, if there's a, you know, a significant hindrance there, and it's not recognized and dealt with effectively, but it's kind of there in the awareness, it's there as a, as a, a screen uh, or a set of glasses of a, a certain color, and uh, you turn towards the object it's not going to go well because you're not going towards the object of concentration with mindfulness. Because mindfulness has been muted or blocked or driven out by the hindrance at present. So this is an important point because you need to understand that mindfulness is the platform for the cultivation of concentration. There has to be mindfulness for concentration to be cultivated. So mindfulness should be uh, inclined towards recognizing what's going on with the mind and it's turning towards the object. And if there's a big fat hindrance there, you need to do something with it. So likewise, something that can make the cultivation more difficult is if there's a lot of report carding going on. So you know, a lot of uh, self-evaluation going on of a critical nature. So and if the mind is thinking how it's going is like a uh, reflection on you, this can often lead to deflation and a collapse of engagement or inflation. So if you notice that you're report carding, see if you can not indulge that because it's actually a hindrance wrapped up in self-view which leads to doubt and then it opens the door to other hindrances to come in. Another thing that's not so helpful is uh, book knowledge. Book knowledge in this area is kind of a dangerous thing. So in this case, awareness is actually not close enough to the object to actually connect with it. Instead, there are a lot of ideas about how the practice should open, what should happen based on what's in books or websites or your own prior experience. So attention is not landing and connecting there uh, and certainly isn't being... Uh, sustain. So instead the mind is hovering in ideas and concepts about things. Fascination or fear of the new. So concentration practice can be kind of trippy. So it can lead to things being experienced in a new or unfamiliar kind of way. 
And this could, on the pleasant side, lead to a kind of fascination or attachment to experiences like piti or sukha, or to fear or aversion of novel body-mind experiences. And both of these can cause the mind to move into a state of grasping for control about what's happening, whether that's to hold on to what is liked or to make something that uh, isn't like go away. So this desire for control sets up a controller that's trying to run the show. Um, And, you know, this obviously isn't going to work, as you've probably seen in your practice by now. But, you know, it fails after it rummages around for a while. Um, And then just another potential areas around energy imbalances, either too much energy for the mind-body to be able to settle down or uh, too little energy, too much of the calming factors uh, where the mind could actually have some concentration but it doesn't have very much brightness and it tends to tip either into sloth and torpor or into the state called sinking mind, which is kind of like a a semi-sleep state that can be pleasant but doesn't have much uh, awareness within it. So that's a pretty long list, but you'd probably be glad to know (laughs) that there are some things that actually help to develop concentration, supports. so first thing here is to smoke out some association with the, the word concentration. And many of us uh, have uh, you know, some unconscious uh, stuff here that kind of fills in every time the word concentration is spoken. You know, like a bad autofill thing on, when you're trying to type something. You know, you write a certain word, it like corrects it. You write this word you want again, it corrects it. Well, sometimes we autofill, when we hear concentration, we autofill something that relates to uh, somebody with a screwed up face that's kind of straining to do something or make something happen. Like, concentrate. Like, you know, your parents saying to you about your math homework, concentrate, concentrate, just concentrate, sit down and concentrate, right? So there's a kind of strong effort there, but it's being made with a kind of tightness and contraction, you know, even desperation. Concentrate, got to concentrate. Ever try to thread a needle when you're in a hurry? (laughs) When you, you want to get that button on your shirt because you got to wear it that day to work, and it's like, hurry, hurry. <laughs> okay, that's not the type of effort that will optimally support the development of wise concentration. Okay, so skillful effort to unify the mind it does need to incorporate resolve and energy. This is true, but the effort can't be too tight or rigid. Which is good because that too tight and rigid is really deeply unpleasant, isn't it? 
You know, when you've got that, like, I gotta get that, and I wanna get that breath, and I'm gonna stay on that breath, and it's like, I'm get it, and I'm gonna stay on it. It's like, oh man. The joy of practice, right? <laughs> so, there, with this, there needs to be a kind of letting go presence, a kind of patience, a relaxation of mind as part of the formula. So, you know, there's yang there, but there's a lot of yin that's being called for in skillful balance. And finding the balance really is one of the most important things about wise concentration. So understanding what kind of uh, effort is called for in that relaxation is actually good. That we can actually be committed to this development, to this cultivation. We can be completely committed and not, not have to bear down in a way um, that introduces a level of stress into the, the process that turns it into something that is... Um, not conducive to relaxation and ease, which is one of the hallmarks of concentration, relaxation and ease in the presence. So if you're going to look at some of the other supports besides this discernment about what wise effort actually is and isn't, you might look at knowing when the mind is concentrated and when it's not. So mindfulness of the mind. Is the mind undistracted? Is the mind unified or is the mind not? And there's an understanding in the teachings when we talked about this with uh, wise effort, or at least I talked about it. That's the royal we. We talked about wise effort, (laughs) didn't we? You were very quiet in what you contributed to the talk, but... um, but just knowing that a whole something wholesome is there serves to strengthen the arising of the wholesome. So sila, ethical restraint, leads to non-remorse, leads to tranquility. The mind is easily settled and takes to practice. And sila is also a source of self-respect, which supports confidence and both expresses and supports meta towards ourselves and towards others and towards what we're experiencing, what we're working with. So meta is a big help in making useful effort uh, towards concentration as well as in making useful effort towards anything. So renunciation. This is a very interesting area in respect to the development of concentration. So... This, of course, is part of wise intention, second step of the Eightfold Path. Letting go of pursuing sense pleasures and worldly pursuits during a period of practice leads to non-agitation. Right? If you're still trying to keep going what you got going when you're not here while you're here, the mind is going to be spinning. So, It's a very interesting thing that a concentrated mind is actually deeply pleasurable, but it's pleasurable in a way that's different from an ice cream sundae. So while the pleasure of concentration can be very deep, 
It can also be subtle, especially initially. So if the mind is churning on about its habitual wants, it it won't settle, so there won't be concentration. So it needs to be able and willing to let go of other things. So a mind that can let go easily, that can let go of the doer, more easily unifies. So instead of bringing the I have to mind forward, the mind feels it gets to let go of everything else. Now that's an interesting framing too. If, say, you're working with the breath for samadhi, if you're working with the breath for concentration, how do you frame this to yourself? Do you frame this to yourself as, I have to be with this and nothing else? Or consider how different the experience might be in your subjectivity if the framing that you had was, I get to be, I'm going to be with the breath, I get to be with the breath, and I get to let go of everything else. I get to let go of everything else. There's no need to attend to anything else. I get to versus I have to. So if one uh, inclines to easily let go, if one inclines towards renunciation, there can be a lot of joy in the mind also that helps support the practice because it brightens the mind. And um, that leads me to talk about faith, sadha, which also arises or arouses effort and energy for the practice and trust in ourselves to be able to do it. And sometimes when people are um, kind of sputtering along or they need a boost with their samatha practice, the teacher will offer a series of things that they can do to help brighten the mind. It might be something like uh, appreciate your wholesome qualities, write them down. It might be something like reflect on the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. It could be reflect on the uh, uh, the Buddha and the qualities of the Buddha. So these are all skillful means to work directly with kind of like the mood and the willingness and the uh, inclination of, of, of the mind to let go of other things and be willing to make skillful effort to establish connection with the, with the task. Because it does call for committed effort. Interestingly enough, in the, the Moody Maga, there's talk of how a clean, orderly, simple physical environment supports clarity. Hmm, that's interesting. Versus, you know, kind of dirty, cluttered one, which expresses a certain amount of turmoil and delusion and, you know, makes you kind of closed-in feeling. If the five spiritual faculties are uh, balanced and engaged and are working with each other, that's a big support for concentration, too. Have you been offered the teaching on the five spiritual faculties? No. Uh, we're saving that till next year.
that's too bad. We'll just keep that one. I'll put that in my my vest here. So it's important if you're working for Samatha that you pick an appropriate object. So the right practice, the right practice object. So some people who are developing concentration, for instance, love working with casinas. Do you know what casinas are? They're these uh, literal objects that are made. They're, they're circles of um, different colors that represent different qualities of mind or different uh, of the elemental factors. And they're used to... Um, um, develop concentration through sight where one looks at this representation say a round brown disc and that's what is used to develop concentration on the mind there's a whole series of steps casinas some people love them love doing this but it's really a rarefied kind of practice right I mean would you want to spend, you know, six weeks or three months, you know, looking at a brown disc, you know, <laughs> hoping to get an after image from the disc and then learn how to develop that? And Okay. So <clears throat> you can tell that wasn't my door there. <clears throat> so... It's important to work within your range with an object that could conceivably become interesting and pleasant to you. So the Brahma-viharas are frequently recommended as a a way to cultivate concentration, and the breath likewise. Those are probably the two uh, most common ones. Continuity of awareness and engagement. So one of the things that you learn with concentration practice or practicing in a concentrated way is that things, meaning meditation objects, get interesting or even magnetic when they're attended to with interest. So some more things to say about that. We have the idea, generally speaking, that a something is either interesting or it's not interesting, right? I'm sure many of you have had the experience of periods in your practice. Yes, perhaps even this very day you may have had some experience in your practice of boredom, right? And usually the way we understand boredom is that it's as a problem with the object. Okay, boredom is not a problem with the object. It is not inherent in the object. Boredom is about attention, (laughs) the quality of attention that's being brought to the object. So things get interesting and even magnetic when they're attended to with interest. So finding a way to relate to the object with metta and devotion is very powerful. So a way to think of this is sometimes when uh, somebody is working with the breath and I can see they're just that in relationship to it. 
And of course, that creates a whole bunch of constriction and tension and wanting and tightening of the mind, tightening of the body and all the rest of it. Sometimes I'll say, you know, you should think about working with the breath like a courtship. Like a courtship. Say you meet somebody and you find them really interesting. You don't know them yet, but there's something about that initial connection with them. You just have a feeling like, hmm, this is like a high caliber person. They seem to have a lot of substance here. I'd really like to get to know them. Think about how you would approach a relationship with that kind of frame. So you would be going for a long-term relationship and not a hookup. Okay. So how are you approaching the breath or your metta practice, right? Are you going like, hey? (laughs) Right? You're going to get your hand slapped. No. So you want to... You know, respect, right? Courtship, dedication, devotion. You know, let the lotus open. All right. So another thing that's really useful is being clear about what your meditation instructions are and working with them with integrity and commitment. So, you know, once you undertake it and you're committed to the practice, make sure you understand the meditation instructions, how you work with uh, concentration practice for absorption is different in terms of how you work for the hindrances, for instance, than how you work in insight practice with hindrances. So just know what set of instructions you're using. Don't keep changing up your practice approach just because you get bored or because it, difficulties are there. Because then the practice won't gain any momentum. It's like, oh, I'm playing baseball. I can't hurt, hit, hit today. You know, it's like I keep whiffing it. Oh, I think I'll go play basketball. Oh, my ankles hurt. You know, I think I'll go and swim. You know, it's like, okay, just like... Just, you know, settle down, okay? Just settle down. Okay, that's not to say that changes of practice or changes in practice can't be helpful. It's just that bouncing around from thing to thing isn't good for concentration because depth doesn't develop. Now, I said earlier that one of the things that's actually useful in developing concentration is to recognize when the concentration is actually present. So a logical question would be, how do you know if concentration is present? I said the essence of the thing is non-distractedness or unification of mind. So that's that's the basic description. You know, the attention is there. It's not wandering. It's not, uh, Flickering. It's uh, if it's uh, you're doing insight meditation practice. If concentration is present there, you're seeing 
objects change, maybe you're seeing the change within objects, but you're in connection, you're in touch with the stream, the stream of arising and changing and passing away experiences. In samatha practice, the mind is more unified on the chosen object. It's like hanging around, right around there, not too much else coming in and pushing it out or swooping it away. That's when it's well-developed. But of course, this is a, a gradual process. So here are some experiences that might indicate concentration is being developed. So some or all of these may be present, especially if one is practicing for absorption. So here's some telltales. The mind is able to stay on the chosen object more or less continuously. So either a chosen object or a flow of objects if we're talking about insight practice. Sometimes there's a sense of being closed in, secluded, with only the object being known. It's like that's the only thing in the world uh, for the mind at the moment. Sometimes the sense of self or the watcher might dissolve or loosen. Have that experience where all of a sudden it's just hearing. There's not like a sense that there's uh, a being that is doing the hearing. There's just the experience. The sense of the body may disappear or alter. Ever had that? Those kinds of experiences, like I'm not sure where my elbow is anymore, and uh, I can't feel my hands, or it's uh, been known sometimes for the the whole sense of the body to completely disappear, or sometimes it's uh, an experience of the thought stream stops, and there's just silence internal silence. A once familiar object might start to seem different, like the breath might start to seem very fine or barely discernible. Or there might be the start of like more sensations per second, kind of like a sense of compression of experience, like it's breaking down into uh, more parts or objects might seem like they they break apart a step instead of just being like a one one thing you might notice oh there's a bunch of little things going on there actually with this experience of thought slowing down or getting quieter or getting more in the background or s- sometimes it can become very indistinct there might be like a sense that there's something kind of thinking somewhere back there, but there's no particular words that are discernible. Um, Sometimes it might be difficult to think if you want to. Oh, I lost my thinking. (laughs) How sad. (laughs) Don't worry, it'll be back. (laughs) So... Objects might become very interesting, alluring, magnetic, attractive. So this is an interesting thing, say, about working with the breath. 
So at first it takes effort to attend to the breath, you know, to aim and sustain the, the mind. Uh, vitaka and vichaya, aiming and sustaining attention to the mind. But at a certain point, it's almost like the breath starts to be a magnet that pulls attention towards it and kind of seals it there. And a deeply pleasant experience in being magnetized in such a way. So there can be a lot of pleasure in the body and the mind. There can be experiences of light or internal sounds or that kind of thing, sensory uh, um, differences from what's familiar. There might be a sense of being out of the reach of hindrances and with that a feeling of well-being and happiness. So if, if you remember what the tagline is for the hindrances, they're called hindrances to concentration. So the understanding is in, in order to cultivate concentration, if you're cultivating concentration in particular, there's a kind of um, chop of hindrances that you need to learn to work with and to get through. And at a certain point, if the concentration is developed and strong enough, it largely seals them out. So all of that might sound interesting or weird or scary or all the rest of it. So... Got some thoughts about wise and unwise concentration. It is possible to have some version of concentration and have it be unwise and counterproductive. So this occurs when concentration arises and or is developed in relationship with unwholesome qualities of mind. So if you've had the experience of like a strong emotional storm you may have experienced what a concentrated set of hindrance feels like, which is not fun. So I think probably everybody here knows what I'm talking about, right? Like some big hindrance comes up, it's got a lot of emotion to it, it's got a lot of physical power to it, it kind of like comes in and it's very powerful, like a really big wave, a really big difficult wave, and sometimes there can be a a lot of these during a period of practice. You can get, sometimes have these cycles happen in days. But of course, you know, we're not training the mind to get lost in strong hindrances or to dissociate. But it's important to realize that there can be meditative challenges there that need to be worked with and overcome. So with wise concentration, mindfulness is always present. And not just mindfulness, as previously mentioned, but other wholesome factors of mind. So for concentration to be wise in the way that we mean it, it always occurs in the presence of mindfulness and within the framework of the Eightfold Path. And if it's strong enough, it will actually close the door on the hindrances, and then there's the experience of a pleasant abiding here and now making the mind fit for use and able to, if you turn it in the direction of insight meditation, investigate the nature 
of arising experience. Those of you who know about the Buddha's life probably know the part of the story where when he left the palace and he went on his search, he studied first with two different meditation masters, both of whom taught some version of concentration practice. And he mastered this to a very high level to the point where the two uh, masters who had these schools each in turn offered to turn over their their whole community, their whole uh, disciples to the Buddha if he would take the leadership role rather than leave. And in both cases, the Buddha said, well, no, because looking at my own mind, I see that my work isn't done. I still have more to do. I haven't freed my own mind from suffering. So it was really when the Buddha took the very powerful concentration that he had cultivated and turned it to a close examination of conditionality to how things arose and how they passed away that he was able to break through and come to understand that it's really uh, delusion and the craving born from it that is the issue and he was able to see deeply enough into causation to create the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths to explain the path of liberation to the rest of us and to give us the formula that we can use to uh, free our minds. So this is a really important point, which is that within the Buddhist framework of understanding, concentration or samadhi is a tool It's a tool. It can provide a pleasant abiding. It can train the mind to unification. It can uh, crowd out unwholesome uh, factors and teach us what it is to exist without being flooded by the hindrances. Um, It can provide power to our insight meditation practice. And it can provide within insight meditation practice a kind of magnifying glass that really supports us in the direct seeing that liberates the mind. So if the mind is powerfully concentrated, its ability to observe is greatly enhanced. So it's just like having um, a magnifying glass or a microscope, right? You see a whole different grain that fills in um, your understanding. The mind is much clearer, it's much steadier. It can, uh, If it chooses, for instance, to uh, attend to working with seeing the arising of intentions, it can see that. If it chooses to notice the end of phenomenon as they pass away, it can choose to attend to that. If it, if it uh, chooses to abide without uh, a choice in any state that arises, it can do that without getting lost in it. So it's a very powerful, powerful quality of mind that has its own intrinsic value, but most importantly, 
within the practice path that emphasizes liberation through uh, uh, wisdom that cuts through delusion, its most uh, significant function is to support the, the mind in finding freedom. So that's the download on on Samadhi. So, you know, you're at a a point in the retreat now where you still have a lot of time to continue to work. So, you know, keep your head in the game. You can still continue to deepen. Now, don't be uh, seduced by thoughts of of the future or by um, random uh, evaluations of how how it's going and how it's been and what you can do. Just just say, let, let the teachings continue to work within you. Recognize this quality of non-distraction when it's there. Consider what supports its development and strengthening and and let go of distractions. If you want an undistracted mind, don't distract yourself. Just let it let it grow. So may our wholesome acts of offering and listening to the Dhamma be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings.